Good morning, brothers and sisters. We extend a warm welcome to all our brothers and sisters who have joined us here in church this morning for worship of our triune God. We also welcome any visitors who have joined us here in church or via the live stream. May we all be comforted and encouraged by the preaching of the gospel, and may God be praised and glorified by our worship. Consistory has the following announcements. Brother Ortonel Gacona and Sister Samantha Hoving from the Free Reformed Church of Byford have indicated their intentions to enter into the married state according to the ordinance of God. They desire to begin this holy state in the name of the Lord and complete it to his glory. If no lawful objections are brought forward, the ceremony will take place, the Lord willing, on Friday the 23rd of September at 1pm in the Free Reformed Church of Byford with Reverend R. Ikeboom officiating. Due to the periodic retirement of Elders J. Bron, J. Vanderlinden, R. Van June and W. Visser, as well as Deacons A. Klein and N. M. Oldenberger, Consistory invites the congregation to submit names of brothers deemed suitable to serve in the office of elder and or deacon. These letters of nominations must be substantiated and signed and are to be handed to the secretary prior to the meeting of consistory with deacons scheduled for Monday the 19th of September. You're reminded of the coffee social after this worship service to celebrate Reverend Poppy's 50th birthday. Consistory as elders only will meet tomorrow evening at 8 p.m., and this morning's worship service will be led by Brother Plater. Before we commence, let us sing together Psalm 101, verse 1. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Let us rise for worship. At the very outset of our worship, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. And God greets us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us continue our worship and sing from Psalm 136, verses 1, 2, and 13.
At this point in worship, we come to God's law, his covenant law. And as we read it, we do so looking into the mirror of his perfect law, seeing how God desires us to live. And looking into that mirror, we also come to know our own sin and our misery as we see our life in this past week and we look at, on the, look at that in comparison to what God says in his law. And as we listen to his law, let us not look into ourselves, but let's look to Jesus Christ who has fulfilled this perfectly for us. So hear God's law as we hear it in Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And our Lord Jesus Christ summarized the law in two ways. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, let us sing now a psalm of confession with the words of Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2.
just sang together, show us your pity, Lord be merciful, O Lord be merciful. And our God is indeed merciful when we confess our sins before him. He says in Isaiah 1 verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Let us now turn to our God in prayer. Almighty God and faithful Father, when your servant Moses delivered your perfect law to your people at Mount Sinai all those years ago, he said to your people, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God by loving the Lord, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land. But then he also said, if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, he said, I declare to you today, you shall surely perish. And Lord, your word testifies to us that your people did not choose life, but they chose death and they perished. But as Paul says in Corinthians, he says that these things happened to them as an example recorded for our instruction. Lord, they chose to turn away from your law, from your good commandments. They lived and walked for themselves. They didn't choose life, but they chose death. And Father, as we look into the perfect mirror of your law, we confess that too often we also have chosen the way of death. We did not love you with our whole heart. We did not walk in your ways. We have not kept your good commandments, but rather we have oftentimes in this past week turned aside. We've turned aside and we've served the other gods that we set up in our own hearts. Oh Lord, we pray that you would please forgive us of our waywardness. Lord, we are so prone to wander. We're so prone to leave the God we love. And so we pray that you would would wash us and that you would cleanse us in the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. That we may be white as snow as you promise us. And that we would also be white as wool. Gracious God, we also confess that in you are hidden all the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we pray as we come before your word that you would open our eyes that we may see the wonders in it. We pray that you would give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of wisdom, the way of life. May your spirit dwell amongst us this morning that we would see our Savior Jesus Christ in all his glory. We pray all this in the name of the name which is above every name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So our reading this morning will firstly be from Genesis 38. If you've been here in Southern River the past couple of weeks, then you would know that we've been working our way through... Uh, the history of, of the story of Joseph and the story of God's dealings with Jacob's family. And so Genesis 38 is the next part of that. So at this stage, God had revealed his, his promises and he had, God had also revealed his way that he was going to lead Joseph. And he did so by, via those dreams. And then what we see later on is due to the hostility and hate, hatred and all the messiness in, in Jacob's family, the brothers end up selling Joseph into slavery. And so now the, the passage now turns to, to talk specifically about Judah. And so we will now read together Genesis 38 and then we'll also read from Ruth, Ruth 4. So Genesis 38, this will also be our text. It happened at at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb, 
when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah to his sheep shears. He and his friends, here are the Adolamite. And when Tamar was told... Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a, a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah saw, sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the, the cult prostitute who was at Enayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or, or we shall be, a, be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. And when she was in labor, sorry, when the time of her labor came, there, was, there were twins in her womb. When she was in labor, one put, on a, put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his, brother's, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zero. So far from Genesis 38, we'll also now turn to Ruth. We'll go to Ruth chapter 4. So you'll find Ruth after Judges and before 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel. So Ruth chapter 4 and instead of uh, verses 7 through 21, we'll be reading verses 13 to 21. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and, made, and, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. The Naomi, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then note this verse, it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So far from the reading of God's word, we'll now sing... And we'll sing hymn 12, 1, 2, and 6.
As I mentioned, the text for this morning is Genesis 38, and since we have read that together, we will proceed to the proclamation of the gospel. And after the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing Psalm 103, verses 1 and 2, about the compassion and grace of our God. Congregation loved by our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the joys going up, up north like to Ningaloo or to Shark Bay or maybe down south to Esperance or one of those places, apart from fishing, is being able to, to see the amazing stars at night. You lay down on the beach and you look up and you just see this breathtaking vastness of all these stars no matter where you look you see them and they covered the whole whole night sky you see satellites crisscrossing and they're just stunningly to just stunning and you could even see sometimes the the haze of the the milky way arm it's absolutely breathtaking now, one of the reasons why we, we love that is especially because, well, here in Perth, because of all the light pollution, we get to see stars, but they're not as bright and they're not as, not as brilliant as when you're in a remote place like up north or, or maybe down south somewhere. Because part of the beauty is because of that deep darkness that is the backdrop for these stars. Behind... Against that backdrop of darkness, the stars just appear in all their, all their glory. Now, congregation, when, when we come to Genesis 38, one of our temptations as Bible readers is just to skip it. Now, partly that's because, you know, if we move from Genesis 37 to Genesis 39, the, the story continues as, as normal. You pick up where you left off. But probably the more likely reason why we skip it is because of the content in Genesis 38. It's filled with all kinds of darkness, lust-filled marriages, there's incest, there's prostitution, there's deception, there's, there's immorality. It's a very dark passage when you look at it. And it's understandable that we want to just move on to the next thing. Some have even said that it's so dark that it speaks nothing of God's works or his speech. Another, another person said that it's t entirely unsuited to be used in preaching. But congregation, we should not see Genesis 38 as a twisted interference in the story of, of Joseph and Jacob's family. Rather, we must be true to our confession which says that all scripture is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That all scripture will equip the men, the children of God. And that's this passage as well. And when we look at it, we see that the, the blackness in this passage just makes the amazing grace of God shine and become increasingly stunning before our eyes. Instead of an account that says nothing about God's speech and about his actions, this is an account that says everything about his speech and everything about his action. We see God graciously preserving the line of Christ despite Judah's unfaithfulness. And that brings us to our theme this morning. God graciously preserves the line of Christ despite Judah's faithlessness. And we'll see three things. Firstly, the line jeopardized. And we'll see the line resuscitated. And finally, we'll see the line continued. So firstly, then, the line jeopardized. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. That was our first introduction of Judah in Genesis 37. And he was more of a slave trader than he was a brother. And Judah's moral failure only grow when we look at this. You see, God promised that through Jacob's family, a Savior would be born into the world. A Savior would come who would crush the head of the serpent. 
And so there was this expectation of a seed that would come from the family of Abram, from the family of Jacob. But then we get Judah's faithlessness. And without divine intervention, humanly speaking, it seems that that seed would never come. That the line of Christ would come to nothing. So in the first verses of our text, it tells us that sometime while while Joseph had been taken away to, to captivity in Egypt, that Judah goes down to his brothers, to the Canaanites, from his brothers I should say. Now as soon as we read that, right away warning bells should be going off in our minds. Judah was a child of promise. And so our text begins with him deliberately leaving the household of God, leaving his family. For the greener pastures of the world. We see him trying to establish himself away from the community of God. We see that Joseph was separated from his family in chains. But Judah was separated by choice. He turns his back on the promises of God. And having left the the household of God, he turns now to the world. He becomes friends with an ungodly man named Hera. And this man becomes his brothers in arms, you could say. And then having befriended Hera, he then marries into the world. We read that in the very next verses. It says that Judah saw and he took a daughter of of a certain Canaanite. So he came, he saw, and he took. And the language is, is reminiscent of what we read in Genesis 3 where Eve saw and she took. His actions here are are filled with lust. They're driven by a desire to to pursue what is forbidden, regardless of the consequences. And so we see that, that, that Judah doesn't care about God, and he doesn't care about God's promises. Now, congregation, this is exactly what the patriarchs feared would happen. This is exactly what they were afraid of. They feared that their children would leave God's household and intermarry with, with the world, with people who had completely different worldviews to them. And by, and by intermarrying with the world, that they would become this indistinct mark in a landscape of heathens. They feared that their children would compromise on their identity as children of God and adopt worldly practices. Just think of what Abram says to his servant. He's, he solemnly swears, he says, he says to him that he cannot find a wife from the Canaanites. Or think of Jacob's mother, Rebekah. She says, she says this in Genesis 27 verse 46, she says, if Jacob marries one of the women of the land, of, of the Canaanites, what good will my life be? You see, they knew That if their children married into the world, that their spiritual lives were at stake. And the Bible only testifies to it, doesn't it? Often as you read through the history of God's people, through the history of Israel, you see that Israel's apostasy and Israel's wickedness, and when they turn away from the Lord, often comes because they compromise on their identity as God's people. And they become like the world. And so there's such a warning for us here in this passage, especially about the importance of the relationships that we have. You may have heard the, problem, uh, the proverb, bad company corrupts good morals. And so this, this passage is asking us a question, well, who are your friends? Who are my friends? Young people, who do you hang around? What are they like? Are they people that encourage you in your, in your faith life? Are you able to have fun with them with, without compromising on who you are? Or do they egg you on? Together you, you do bad things. They egg you on to say bad things. See, Proverbs 12 verse 26 says, The righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. So this passage is warning us about the company that we keep. If you have wicked friends, friends who don't care about God, they will lead us astray. They will pull us away from God, or as Proverbs 22 says, they will ensnare us. So back to Judah. So Judah goes into the world. 
He marries into the world. He befriends the world. And we see that he starts to reap what he sows. With all these worldly influences surrounding his family and Judah's own faithlessness, Judah's children become godless. And I mean very godless. Ur and Onan were wicked men, the Bible says. They were so wicked that God strikes them down. It says there that the Lord put them to death. Now if you read throughout Genesis, you, you see so much evil and so much wickedness. But this is the first time that you read of God striking down someone because of their wickedness. Ur and Onan were so wicked, God struck them down. And for Onan, God kills him because of the way that he abused his duty that he had to his his brother-in-law. You see, after the death of Ur, Judah tells Onan to go and and marry his, his his brother's wife. And this was a practice called leveret marriage. Now to us, it seems very strange. It's strange. You, you probably almost cringed a little bit when you read it. It seems like a very odd practice. But this was an important tradition that we read about later on in scriptures, which as I mentioned is called leveret marriage. And the purpose of it was to ensure that no line in God's family would be cut off from the promised land. As we've been going through this series, we've been highlighting how important the promised land was to God's people and how his program was to lead them to the promised land. And now here, God is ensuring that no one would be cut off from that land, from that beautiful inheritance. And so what would happen as we read in Deuteronomy 25, what would happen is a brother would, would marry his, his, his brother's widow and then have a child with them. And that was to ensure that they would be able to have an inheritance. You have to remember that during that time, there was no life insurance. There was no government aid. There was no center link that you could go down to the road to. There was none of that. So if if a man died in the household, the the family was in dire straits. Especially if there wasn't any heir to, to carry on the name. And so God actually gives this law in His grace. So that no, no one would lose a portion of his inheritance. It was God's grace of, of curbing the, the negative effects of the fall. It was to provide support for widows and children. Now Onan did not like these terms and conditions. We read that he's happy to satisfy his, his lustful desires and, and use Tamer for his own sexual ends. But he would not impregnate her. And the text tells us that he did this regularly. He did this repeatedly. And God in his justice strikes him down. And so here we, we're in the midpoint of this, this chapter and we just see that Judah's family has gone to nothing almost. Notice the consequences of Judah's actions not only for himself but also for his family. Judah goes down. He goes down to the Canaanites. But we read he he goes down spiritually. And that slope was very slippery. At this point in the text, you see that Judah's line is in serious jeopardy. Two of his sons are dead. He only has one son and he has a widow to take care of. He deliberately leaves the household of God. He he moves in with the world. He He becomes like the world. And now it seems that he's going to disappear into the world as well. The line of promise is in jeopardy. Indeed, God's child is walking down the self-made path of destruction. But brothers and sisters, despite Judah's faithlessness and his rejection of God, our God is not finished with Judah. That's what we'll see in the next point, the line resuscitated. God is not done with him. Judah's family quickly goes from three sons to one son. And he's not willing to to risk any more chances. He tells Tamar to remain at at her father's home. He essentially, he puts her on the shelf as it were, so that he doesn't have to deal with her. He doesn't have to take care of her. He puts her aside. She's the problem. She's the bad omen. She's the one that's causing all the problems in his life. Apparently, Judah sees no connection between his own sin, and his present situation. He had sold his brother into slavery. 
He had left the church, you could say. He hung out with the wrong crowd. He married into the world. And now he blames Tamar. She's the problem. She's the reason for the two tombstones outside his house. He blames everyone but himself. And then he tells her, you can have Sheila when he grows up, which essentially meant never. Now, as our, our passage unfolds, it's unsurprising that Tamar quickly realizes that, that nothing's going to happen. That she'd been deceived. It says that she saw that Sheila was grown up and that he, she had not been given to him in marriage. In verse 14. And this motivates her to act. And so she deceives her father-in-law to sleep with her. She disguises herself as a, as a prostitute and positions herself by the gate of Anaim where he was going to walk right by from his, from his uh, sheep shearing festival that he went to. And Judah sees her thinking she's a prostitute. He requests her services. She responds with a price. And, Jacob, and Judah responds by giving her a pledge. His signet and his cord and his staff. All of which were very significant items. I mean, your signet was a stamp that you'd use to legitimize transactions. So essentially what Judah did, he handed her his full wallet with his visa card, his driver's license, and with his tax file number. Now unbeknown to him, Tamar would use these not as a pledge but as evidence. Evidence to secure her, safely, her safety. You see, it was a very bold, it was a dangerous, and it was a sinful plan. But it worked. The text says, so he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Judah went into her and she conceived. And in the natural course of events, Tamar is, is pregnant. And people realize that it's not Sheila. Tamar has been immoral, they say, or you could translate it this way. Tamar has acted the prostitute. And Judah comes to her with severe and quick judgment. Burn her, he says. He jumps at the opportunity to get rid of her. We see that he's quick to condemn others of the very sin that he himself was guilty of. Three months ago, he had happily slept with a prostitute. And now he condemns in hypocrisy this woman for acting the prostitute. Bring her out that she should be burned. And then in verses 24 to 25, we see that Tamar pulls out her trump card. She sends word ahead of her and presents these personal items. And, and note how similar this is to Genesis 37. Genesis 37, Judah had said to his father, he sent the belongings that ripped garment of Joseph ahead. And he says, please identify whether these are your sons. And she says, please identify whether this is your signet, your cord, and your staff. She was a true daughter-in-law of Judah. Judah deceived his father with a young goat and Joseph's personal items. And now Tamar deceives Judah with a young goat and his own personal items. She meets deception with deception. The deceiver has been deceived. And what's amazing is that this is a turning point in Judah's life. He says there in verse, in verse 26, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son Shelah. Judah is confronted by his own sins and he confesses them. You could translate it, she is righteous, not I. He's saying, I'm guilty. Faced with the irrefutable evidence of what he had done. He does not try to justify it. He doesn't try to excuse it. No, he comes clean. He acknowledges his guilt. He had walked away from God. He had walked away from the promises. He neglected his responsibility to Tamar. And he had acted out of selfishness. And here we see a breakthrough in Judah. This is incredible, brothers and sisters. You see, God was not finished with his child. God's spirit was powerfully breaking through the hard heart of Judah. You see, the next time we read about a pledge in Genesis is in Genesis 43, when Judah pledges his life for his younger son. 
That's a completely different man than what we see in Genesis 38. And that complete turnaround starts here. It starts where God breaks through the heart of Judah. Judah had walked away from God. He was faithless. But God was faithful. He had compromised on his identity as a child of God. He had compromised on his, on his actions and the way he conducted himself. And yet God pursues him. And more than that, God uses the sin of Tamar and the sin of Judah to continue his line. The text says that Tamar conceived. His line was resuscitated. Isn't it unbelievable that God just doesn't throw in the towel with Judah? That God doesn't just forget about Judah, just let him die off. I mean, look at him. Look at what he did. And yet God continues with him. Despite his children's unfaithfulness, God continues with his child. And brothers and sisters, isn't that not true for us as well? How often do we also compromise on our identity as God's children? How often do we not compromise on our identity as those who are bought by the blood of Christ? And we turn and we do our own things. We live selfishly. Our passage speaks about sexual sin. Brothers, how, brothers and sisters, how often do we not do the same? We compromise on God's calling for our lives even as it plays out in terms of the way we, we act with our bodies. We, we allow ourselves to think about lustful thoughts. We watch inappropriate movies or read inappropriate books. We allow ourselves, we compromise with these explicit videos, whether it's on Instagram or Facebook or some other website. How often do we not also compromise our identity? You see, we're not looking into a, mic a microscope at one obscure Sinner, we're looking into a mirror of our own soul. We too are also faithless, often. We often choose to forfeit what God has promised us and in a moment turn aside and do our own thing. We so often turn our backs on God. And yet isn't it true that God also pursues us? And yet God also graciously continues with us. Where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. Isn't it true? And the reason why is because God has laid the curse which should have come on our sins and should have come on our faithlessness. He's laid that on his son, on his faithful son. You see, Christ bore our curse. He bore Judah's curse. So that instead of Judah being lost in a land of iniquity, that Judah also might experience God's grace. Despite his sin, God doesn't give up on Judah. And brothers and sisters, despite our sin, God doesn't give up on us. God's not finished. And that's what we see as it continues in, in the third point. The line continued. God in his grace was not finished with Judah. He was not finished with Judah and he wasn't finished with Tamar. He had this amazing plan for both of them. And that plan included the preservation of the line to Christ. It's amazing. He includes Tamar in this as well. This Canaanite woman outside of the household of God, God includes in it. And if we just put ourselves in her shoes, just think of what had happened to her. Tamar was this beautiful woman. Full of potential. The word Tamar, the, the name means a palm tree. It speaks of beauty. It speaks of fertility. It speaks of promise. It's, it speaks of a glorious future. But due to the sinfulness of her husband Ur, she is left a widow. And then due to the sinfulness of her husband Onan, who repeatedly abuses her, she's left widow again. And then he dies. And she's left there hurt and ashamed. And seen as the curse of the family. It's amazing. This is another person who comes into the family of blessing and experiences profound pain. But look what God does for Tamar. 
by her actions, even though they were sinful actions, God places her in the very center of redemptive history, in the very center of his saving